It's Jenny. How are you? Yeah, pretty good. How about you? I'm good. So, good. What, what you got? Okay, it's kind of wild, but it's it's interesting. Okay. All right, the, the day that that murder happened, my mother-in-law and my two kids were there. Uh, I don't remember what time for sure. I'm thinking it was before lunch. But we were going to go get some fish, and we couldn't get anybody to wait on us. And I went upstairs, and I asked if there was somebody that could wait on us because we wanted some fish. And she says she should be down there. And that's when I, I hollered, and nobody answered. I opened the door a little bit, and nobody answered. And so I finally I said, <clears throat> well, you know what, let's just go. <clears throat> and, of course, my son, he was disgusted. He was mad because he wanted his fish. I had to practically drag him up the steps to, to leave. All right. Well, then later that afternoon, I was in the kitchen getting supper around, and my son was sitting at the kitchen table. Okay. Now, he was only four years old at the time. He would have been, that was in January. He would have been five in May, so he wasn't quite five yet. Okay. And we're sitting, and I'm cooking, and, and my mother-in-law called, and she says, Pam, there's been a homicide at the gamble store. And I said, how do you know? She said, it just came across the scanner. It did come across the scanner as a homicide. Okay, so who, let's go back just a second. So you guys had a scanner in your house. Do you know if, like, all the neighbors did? Was it very popular? It was popular, yes. I didn't have one, but my mother-in-law did. This podcast covers a murder that occurred in 1983. It is a true story, and while I have relied heavily on police reports and public documents, the opinions of the host and interviewees are simply that, opinions, not facts. The credibility of the witnesses and what they say is to be determined by the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent, until proven otherwise in a court of law. And you said you don't remember what time? Was it morning? or? I do not remember. I'm thinking it was before lunch, but I really couldn't tell you because a lot of times... We'd eat lunch in town and do her running around and then come home. I know I was home in time for my daughter to take her nap, and she was taking her nap when my mother-in-law called me. Okay, so, and you said you were in the store with your, your children, more than one child? Uh, yes, I had a, my son was four years old, and my daughter would have been, uh, she would have been just a little over a year Okay. She would have been you a year two, old. and You had two little ones, and so you were there. Right. It was you, your two children, and anyone else was with you? And my mother-in-law. Okay, so you went, and you went down to the pet department? Yes, we were going to buy some fish. Okay, and when you were down there, did you see anyone else? Nope, not a soul. All right, so you went down there. Go ahead and tell me what happened again um, from there. Okay, I left my mother-in-law downstairs with the kids, and I ran up to the top of the steps, and there was a woman at the register right at the top of the steps. And I asked her if there was someone that could help us because we wanted some fish. And she says, she should be down there. She says, just holler for her. And we were there you know, probably 
a good 15, 20 minutes looking at the fish and waiting, you know. Well, we went back down. I went back downstairs, and I hollered for her. I kept saying, hello, hello, and nobody answered. And so I opened the door crack and hollered, and nobody answered. And so we waited a few minutes, and finally I said, well, let's just go. <clears throat> so I drug my son up the stairs because he kept hollering, no, he wanted fish. <laughs> and, and we left. Okay. And we come home. It was later in the afternoon. And my phone rang. And my mother-in-law said, there's been a homicide at the gamble store. And I said, how do you know? And she said, it came across the scanner. And I said, and it said homicide? And she said, yes. And I says, oh, my goodness, who was it? And she says, the woman, I, I'm assuming it was the woman downstairs. And uh, so I said, okay. Or she, you know, or she said it was a woman, a homicide is what she mm-hmm. said. And so we, she, she said a woman in the store is what she said. Okay. And uh, so I said, okay. So, you know, we had to talk about it. That was exciting news, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. then. I got off the phone, and my son was sitting at the kitchen table, and he was coloring. And I called my friend, and I told her about it. And we talked for a little bit, and then got off the phone. And I'm fixing supper, and he's sitting there, and he's rubbing. He's got his eyes closed, and he's rubbing by his temples. And he says, I see that woman. You do not. He says, yes, I do. I says, all right, where is she? And she, he says, in that room back behind where we were looking at the fish. Oh, my. Yeah. And I says, what do you see? And he says, she's all bloody. Oh, my God. And I says, you, you do not. And he says, she's wearing brown pants. And he says, I can't tell you what color, because he really didn't know all of his colors. And, you know, he was only four. Right. <laughs> he says, I can't tell you what color her shirt was. And I said, do you see the color? And he said, yes. And I said, show me something that's that color. And he looked around, and he looked up at the clock. And by the clock, I had a, a wooden clock up there. And uh, like a, it was like a piece of log that had been cut off and made into a clock. And around it, I had some of these butterflies from Home Interior. And they were gold with kind of black flecks in them. And he says, the color of those butter- butterflies. And I said, gold? And he said, yeah. That's 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 what he said she was wearing with brown pants and a gold a gold shirt. I see. Okay. And so I says, um, how did she die? And he says somebody beat her with a tire iron, which I didn't think he even knew what a tire iron would be, you know. Oh my and, goodness. And I says, yeah, okay. And I, you know, I this is crazy. He he's got an imagination, you know. He's coming up. Uh, thinking up the stuff just to get me going. And I didn't think too much of it. Well, I talked to my dad on the phone last night, and I told him about it. So I can't remember if it was the next day or a few days later. My dad would call me every night and say, okay, what has he said now? And I said, well, he told me that he can see where that guy lives. And I asked him, what does this place look like? There's a small blue garage right by the road and it's on a blacktop road and the snow plow or no he said it's on a blacktop road that was the end of that conversation that day another day he was and this every time he talked to me he was sitting at the same spot at the table 
I mean, whether it was eating his lunch or what, he always wanted to sit in his dad's spot at lunchtime. And so, and that's where he'd set the color and stuff, where his dad sat at, you know, the table. Mm-hmm. And uh, he says, the snow pile is going past that guy's house right now. Oh, my gosh. And were you and getting, said, every time you asked him, were you getting, like, more nervous? Like, oh, my gosh, what is he, yeah, what is I this was, kid doing? <laughs> and so then, then he says, I said, do you know where he's at? <clears throat> he's at work. And I said, where does he work? And he says, I don't know. It's a great big building like a hospital or a factory. Well, then one night my dad called me and he says, well, what has he said today? And I said, he told me that the guy is driving a small yellow car. And he said, call the police. And I said, why? And he said, because he lived in Big Rapids. And he said, it's in the today's paper. They are looking for a small yellow or orange car. I got a bunch of the news articles related to Jeanette's case early on, but I didn't recall anything about a yellow or orange car. The woman I am interviewing sent me the article it was mentioned in, though. It turns out it was in one of the articles that I had, but some of the copies that I got while researching up at the Ferris State University Library, they print directly from the microfiche machine, and they're pretty grainy and dark most of the time. So the article in question was from about a week after the murder, and it's titled, Murder Probe Continues. Quote, Police are still seeking a suspect in connection with the murder of a Reed City woman whose body was discovered last Wednesday in the storage room of a pet store in the basement of the Gamble store. This is a real baffler, to say the least, said Osceola County Prosecuting Attorney James Talaski of the murder of 27-year-old Jeanette Robertson, mother of two. We're checking out approximately 100 different leads at the present time, although nothing yet is concrete, he added. The article went on to say, Police are still searching for two women who purchased fish equipment the day of the murder and may have witnessed the bizarre crime. They added the women are not suspects, but they may have important information concerning the murder. I believe those women would be Jan and Venus, which were the two women who were in the store sometime between two and three with two little twin boys, and say they were there for quite a while and never saw Jeanette or any other customers until right before they left. Remember, Jan had told me that when she went up to get a cashier to ring them up, and when the woman came down with her, suddenly there were a bunch of customers down there, and they were all together. She said she remembered thinking, wow, nobody down here this whole time, and suddenly there's a whole bunch of customers. She had also said that she had a recollection of some guy customer coming down and looking for the cashier at some point while they were down there, and he said, there's nobody down here? And she said no, and he went back upstairs. Also from the earlier article, quote, Talaski contends that the time of death occurred sometime between 2 and 3 p.m. Robertson's body was discovered by a store employee shortly before 4 p.m. Police said Mrs. Robertson died from a blow to the forehead from a blunt object. The exact weapon used, however, has not yet been determined. Talaski said further lab results should be available by the end of the week. He added that there had been no reported problems in the store the past few weeks, and fellow employees described Mrs. Robertson as a woman who was easy to get along with. We are urging anyone who may have seen someone giving Mrs. Robertson a hard time or bothering her in any way prior to her death to call the state police post in Reed City. Someone may have even overheard something between Jeanette and her assailant 
that would be extremely beneficial to us, he added. I have to wonder if this was related to police being told about the man coming in and bothering Jeanette in the days leading up to the murder, the one that was described to me by one of Jeanette's friends as being in his 30s to 40s with dark hair and square or old-fashioned-looking glasses. It does seem as though police felt that the amount and frequency of the customers that day suggested that someone leaving or entering the store could have come in contact with the perpetrator, who may have even appeared to be another customer on first glance. That makes sense given the theory that the murder was precipitated by an instant and impulsive fit of rage and not a premeditated crime, based on the weapons being weapons of opportunity and not something the killer carried in with him, along with a plan to kill her that day. But the last paragraph of this article is what the woman and I are talking about, the one I'm interviewing. This is what she wanted me to see. According to Tulaski, officials are also looking for the owner of a light green, yellow, or cream-colored compact car with Alabama license plates. The car was seen near the area where the crime took place. So that's why her father was so insistent when her little boy mentioned a small yellow car. Now I have no way of knowing if that car with the Alabama plates is still relevant to the case, or if it was already located and ruled out, but if you know who that car belonged to, or remember a local at the time who had visitors from Alabama, or anyone who would have been driving a small light-colored car that day, please contact me so we can check into it further. Or you can pass that information along directly to the Michigan State Police. I have pinned the contact information for one of the cold case detectives to the top of the Down and Away main Facebook page. Now, what did he say? What, tell me what he said about the house again real quick. It was, he just remembered. All he told me was that there was a small, and I believe he said blue, I'm almost sure he said blue, garage really close to the road. He says like our garage because our garage is close to the road. Okay. <laughs> and uh, one of them is. And, and he says, and it's a black hop truck or black hop road. And then, and I can't remember if he told me that day or another day that the snowplow was going past his house at that time. Hmm. Wow. That's crazy. It is. No. It really is. It was scary. And I wouldn't call the police because I said, Dad, he's only four years old. I, it scares me, you know, because and, people talk and that gets out. And is the guy going to be after him then, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, I understand. And plus, he's not telling you anything he saw as a fact. He's telling you something right. like a psychic. So it's not that's not right. like. You know, but it's certainly it's interesting too. Let me ask you this: Do you think while you were in the the store that day that he could have peeked in the back room? Well, we were both looking between the the aquariums, trying to see in there, but we couldn't see anything. And you don't know if he went like and opened the little back door to see if he saw anything. No, no, and saw her he bloody. Didn't. No, he didn't open the door. You don't think? No. Uh. Uh-uh. And so you're thinking the time of day that you went would have been before your daughter's nap time. So certainly before she and, and you didn't get that call from your friend about the scanner till later. From my mother-in-law. It was in the later afternoon. Right. Right. Well, that that scanner call would have been going through right around four o'clock or so. And we were home evidently when. Right. Because see, my husband got home and we ate at five thirty and I was in fixing supper. OK. So. So you do you think if you were to guess uh, you were there before noon or afternoon? Uh, I'm 
you know, it's so many years ago, but I'm thinking it was before noon. Okay. But then the more I think about it, I don't know if it was or not. <laughs> right. It gets hard to remember back that far. Right. Goodness. Hmm. And and he also told me that the guy was wearing a leather jacket and an orange hat or orange beanie. Leather jacket and an orange beanie. Oh, that's interesting. Huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> did, he, did he have any other description of the guy? I know. And, you know, I, I sit here and I think about it now. Why didn't I ask him that? Well, well, you're just probably so sh- <laughs> You probably were so shocked. You didn't want to, you know, interrogate the poor kid. I was just, I was flabbergasted. <laughs> yeah. But, and I, and, but I'm sitting here thinking, why didn't I ask him what the guy looks like? Now, he's 40 years old now, and I'm asking this stuff, and he can't remember it. Um, if you think back to the day when you were there, um, was the store busy? Did you see other customers upstairs? What did it, what do you remember? Yeah, I didn't, I, I, I'm not one to notice a lot going on around me anyway, <laughs> but I do remember taking him up the stairs and I'm practically dragging him and he's, he's, I were, I always have carried a shoulder strap purse and he was hanging onto the strap of that purse and pulling on it and saying, no, I want my fish. Mm. Cause we had the, we had the fish all picked out while what he wanted, you know? And, um, uh, so I do remember passing somebody upstairs as we're going out the front. But I couldn't tell you anything about them. Male or female or I nothing? I don't know. I just remember passing people and being embarrassed. Oh, good. He was acting like this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I've been there, believe me. <laughs> I've had one over my shoulder before dragging him out of a store. So I can... Yep, me too. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But I was carrying my daughter, so I couldn't carry him too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, I know. Oh, my goodness. Well, that is... Fascinating. I mean, do you know, I talked to a lot of people that um, that never spoke to police that were in the store that day, that just didn't think that they had anything. And even even subtracting the part of your story about what he told you, which is fascinating, it's just as fascinating as when, you know, when I met with a psychic that had worked with police. Um, but the fact that you were in the store and never spoke to police, see, there were a lot of people that were in the store that day that just didn't talk to police because they didn't know that there was anything. Yeah, they just didn't. But the thing is, everyone was important because the timeline is critical in this case. And so every single person that was in that store, whether they think they saw anything or not, just for the police to know, you know, it's hard now. It wouldn't be as easy to retrace it. But just for the uh, police to know every single person and what time they were in there would have helped limit the time that the perpetrator could have passed them because if you didn't see anybody coming downstairs when you were down there, then clearly the person who did it didn't pass you, you know, on the stairs or something. So every single person that was there was important, no matter if it was morning. And, you know, you don't think about that of them trying to put together a timeline. You don't think about that. I just thought I didn't see nothing. So I didn't go in and talk to them. Yeah, and that's true. Exactly. And I know the police, they put out so many pleas for if you were in the store, no matter what, you know, give us a call. But uh-huh. not everybody saw every single news. Uh, you know, right. Here. And I didn't either. I, I didn't I didn't subscribe to the paper if I happened to be in town and pick it up. You know, I tried to get the the Wednesday paper. I think it was on Wednesday or Thursday it came out and because and, it only come out once a week, you know, for Reed City. And I would get that and read it. My dad would call me if there was anything in particular that was interesting that 
you know, and tell me about it. Right. And then the only other time you'd hear about it, unless you were just ta- talking with other people throughout the day, is like the 5 o'clock or the 5.30 or the 11 o'clock news. You know, those would be the only right. times you would hear it. And if you worked during those times or if you were putting the kids to sleep or if you were taking a shower, you right. wouldn't hear it. So there's so many opportunities for people to have missed uh, things that police said or what they were looking for. And, and I think that's just there can be a series of those things where all of a sudden, you know, Time goes by and a lot of people that should have been talked to didn't really get talked to. The one more thing I wanted to remember to ask was about the scanner. So you say when um, your mother-in-law called you, she had a scanner and she heard them say there was a homicide. And the ambassador. And and at the time they called that in, they said it was a female? No, I don't remember if it was or if I'm getting, getting that from my son saying he could see her, you know. So all you remember her saying was that there had been a homicide. There has been a homicide in the gamble store. Wow. I'm just shocked at how many people had scanners back then. Well, I know she had one, and my, my friend's husband had one. and <laughs> I mean, I did. I, I talked to the dispatcher who dispatched the call that day, and we were just, you know, talking about it. He said it was so popular back then. It was just something that everyone had was these Bearcat scanners. Well, and, and the- Later, we got one ourselves, you know. I've got one now, but I don't like it because the old ones, you could punch the numbers in for different, like, dispatch and car to car and all that. Now you can't. You It's it's got to be programmed by somebody that knows how to do it. And Yeah, and even then, they jam some of the signals for the for the police. Well, yeah, it'll come, they'll say go, because that's what they did a lot, too, is they say go low. And then it was all mumbo-jumbo, and you couldn't make any heads or tails out of it. But you have a specific recollection that you, at the, during that time period, you would be able to know which channel was car to car or to dispatch? Um, I got the numbers from somebody to program it in. And, well, my friend's husband had all the numbers and he gave them to me. And, and I suspect a lot of people had them then because that kind of word travels fast. Right, right. <laughs> well, I think you could even get it from the like Radio Shack and stuff. Where you buy the scanners, you know. Well, I know there's a, been a lot of chatter the last couple of days about is there something going on? Is there something going on? Are people getting questions? So I don't have any more information than anyone else. I think they really got it all clamped down right now. Well, there's so much talk right now. Um, <clears throat> it was just like my son told me, told me yesterday that he had heard that... They'd done a polygraph test on him, and he didn't pass it. So I'm beeping out names for obvious reasons. Right now, this is just gossip. But the reason I am including this is because I had about five or six people in the span of two days this week contact me privately to ask what I knew about so-and-so being arrested or questioned or having taken a polygraph. And I know nothing, absolutely nothing. This is probably a good time to tell you that the Michigan State Police as lovely as they have all been with me. Don't exactly call me up to chat over coffee about the state of Jeanette or anyone else's case. Detectives don't generally offer much, if anything, about open homicide cases. So I'm left to wade through the gossip, hearsay, and crazy theories just like the rest of you. And we all know what happens with a nugget of information in a small town. That nugget can grow into a meteor that is hurling toward you at the speed of light in the time it takes for someone to tap in the security password on their iPhone. So, while I have heard a number of interesting tidbits over the past few days, I have no way of knowing what is the truth and what's nonsense. 
It does seem like there's a lot of chatter all of a sudden and out of the blue, though. I can only hope that means there's movement on Jeanette's case. Who's finding out all these names? That's who I want to talk to. That's what I said. Where are they getting this kind of information? Yeah, exactly. I mean, they're not going to tell this. No, they're not. So it's either the only way that information would get out is if the person that did take the test said something, number one, you know, if they said I took a polygraph and and it was going around, or there's somebody out there spreading fake news. And gossip is normal. Everybody's talking about it, and you want everybody to talk about it because then you... Yeah, because that's what helps remember and remind people. Um, but you know, the, the police aren't going to tell that they're going to do a, a polygraph test on. No. I mean, they don't they don't tell that stuff. No. Unless maybe somebody's told to come home and talk to their family about it and they told it, you know. No. And the other the other option is, is that somebody who does know something is out there just floating gossip and misinformation to get everything all confused. Yeah, that you could know, be true. Yeah, yeah, that's the other thing I always look for. Yeah. It's hard to tell. It's hard to tell, but you're right. There's so much gossip. It just seems like right now that there's way more gossip that like people keep hearing stuff that has been in years. So it feels like there's got to be some truth to it. You know, like he wasn't arrested, right. but maybe he's been questioned. But that's, I don't know. that's how that's how gossip works in small towns. Right. That, that's how. Right. And I think, you know, to be very honest, I think one of the reasons why Jeanette's case is not solved yet is because there are a couple different very specific theories that people have. Um, was one of them. Um, Alvin, the husband. Um, Police covered something up. Um, a prominent businessman. Uh-huh. There are three or four very specific theories that everyone latches onto, and they believe one of them, right. and then they won't have any That's more room okay, in their head. You know. for, yeah, and they won't. And that means if they, they get tunnel vision, then they just look yeah. straight ahead and won't look at nothing else. And not only that, but if that's if they're only looking at that, they're not thinking about the little small things that they may have seen that day that might be important to finding the real killer. Like they're right. just not even paying attention. And I know I have sat here ever since you started the podcast and I had and I read your book and I I have racked my brain thinking, is there something I go in bed and they all let me dream about that day oh. so I can see it. You know, well, I, I it's just just. I hope everyone is is feeling that way, though. I mean, it, I know it makes you it makes me feel bad that you know because you can only you can only know so much. You were only in one place. Right. You only, but if everybody in town, we this town only has about twenty five hundred people. It's a very small town, and I think the police believe, and so do I, that the person who did this was a local of Reed City or the surrounding okay. area. You know that place to be yeah. able to do, go yeah. do what he did, and and I'm telling you right now, my theory is is the guy. I mean, it's not my theory, but it's a good thing that he could do is even if he was down in that basement when they found her and they ran back upstairs, he could have got out of there. And when they all come running to the stairs, that upstairs is cleared out. He can get right out that back door without anybody seeing. Yeah, it was definitely the building was set up that if he ran out that back way and could get out so easily, it that that's definitely could have happened. I mean, it's it's a... Right. There weren't a lot of people that were aware of that back entrance area, except for the people that were around when the men's door was around. They would all know that they all had basements and there would be a set of stairs, you know. So anyone who had been in the men's store would know those stairs were there. But once the once the Gamble store expanded into that side and they bought it and they expanded into it, you know, I guess that wasn't a traveled area as far as customers. You, almost, you guys only went up and down one set of stairs, and that was the one by the register. But... It wouldn't take much for someone to know that back set of stairs. And certainly if you were stuck down there for any period of time. I mean, my theory has always been that 
There were so many. I mean, it wasn't a busy store, but there were there was a a a, a constant flow of traffic. It continues, yeah, yeah. So the person only had limited time to get out between customers, and I think that there's definitely a good chance that the killer was in the back room with her, um, and in between got caught between customers and had to keep her quiet, or or she was dead already, and then had to wait uh-huh. till in between t- in between customers to get out, and they he would not have been able to get from that back room into the um, the men's store side. I do not believe he would have had to gone out through the pet store through one of the back accesses to get over to the other side. So it was definitely a someone who took a, a great considerable risk you know well, they did that i mean that's a big risk i mean because anybody could anyone some from upstairs could have came walking in that back room you At know anytime yes right right yeah uh, but now and that's you know and this is another theory everybody's got all oh, he he got out those tunnels well and uh, I tr- I've so much tried to Aren't clear that up. Off? Yeah, they were. And I've tried to clear that up so much because I did speak to the evidence technician. And, well, see, because uh, they can go all around the town of Reed City. I do know that. I, yeah, because my son told me that when they were in high school, there is a door in the high school that goes down under them tunnels. There's a lot of, um, there were a lot of access points at one time. Each business would have had an access point that was, okay, you know where the, the, on the street level where all the front doors are. Just go uh-huh. straight down, pretty much, from every business, there would be another little door that would access beneath where the sidewalk is. For, for them getting their coal, wasn't it? Yes, they were old coal shoes. But yeah. a lot of them had them already blocked off at that time anyway. And well, I would think you'd want to because anybody could get into your business if you didn't have it locked up. When I spoke to Detective Southworth, he said they definitely got the blueprints to double check, but they they had no indication that there was any way to get out that way at the time. And I even talked to over at the buckboard, um, Carrie, who was working there that day. She said their her um, her door to her basement was bolted. They wouldn't have been able to get upstairs from underground. Uh-huh. And so there there may have been some limited access, but there was an access to get from the Gamble store down there under into the main tunnel and just walk around. They had to have gone out one of the top level doors. Right. Uh, there was no right. way for them at that point to get out because I talked to the evidence technician and he said no. There were no tunnels that we took evidence from. There was nothing. There was the back room and that's it. So, so the only way out was to go upstairs one yeah, way or the exactly. other. Now, and then the, the and I highly doubt that the person went up the main set of stairs by the register. There's just well, no, no way. because it'd be too risky. Yeah, and he had to have had blood on him. Yeah, yeah. Or the other option is that he was wearing a jacket when he committed the crime, and he took the jacket off because the jacket was bloody, and maybe his shirt underneath wasn't as bloody. But who knows? I mean, I, I think that he right. had to have. Well, yeah, because he could have just grabbed a gamble store bag from down there. Yep, and put his stuff in it. it Yep, exactly. So I I think you walk out like a customer with a bag, and who would know? And if he went out on the other side, because there were two back exits, the one, the old men's store side, um, it was a straight shot from that back set of stairs back. So that would be pretty easy to get out because the customers didn't generally go on that side. So, I mean, you know, I'm just, the next episode is going to be interesting, and I want you to make sure you tell everybody to listen. Even I, I know, I can't wait. I always check it late Thursday night just to see if it's on. And I'm, I'm in bed by 9.30, 10 o'clock, and I stay up sometimes till 11. Oh. 
Bless your heart. See, I love it that the the local people are so interested because I really I know it's within you guys' power. It's I wasn't here. It's not within my power right. to think of it. Right. Somebody's got some information that 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 we just need to unlock. And, and that's so, what I said. As and I just like and they laugh at me, and I said I can't help it. I almost feel like I should know something. Maybe mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe it's just like I said. I'm picking that up from what my son said. I don't know what the deal yeah. is, but. Well, sometimes, yeah, and sometimes, um, and that's why I wanted to do the book, because I figured if I can put all the information that I do know, somebody might feel that way. Oh, I do have a little bit of information. It might strike a chord with somebody, you know. Right. Well, as I told my son, I said, you've got to figure out what you've seen back then. I said, because i got to know before I die. (laughs) Oh, well, hopefully. So they're still doing the cold case? I know they definitely sent items in for retesting, and they were working very closely with the lab to try to figure out. See, what they do is they get with the crime lab. They get with people from the crime lab, and they tell them, give them the basic idea of what happened in the crime. And then the crime lab and them put their heads together and think, where would he have touched her clothing? Where would this have happened? Where can we get the evidence from the clothing? And, and you know, there's so many fingerprints that from so many people. Well, I mean, mine might be down there. If they ran them now, they would come up because I work at Wackenhut and I got fingerprinted, you know? (laughs) Yeah, and see, that's the thing. They have to sift through what's really evidence, and it's a store, so some of that's not evidence. Some of that's just customers. But it would be within the... You, they would be starting. The area. Yes, and not only that, but on her. Nowadays, they can do touch testing, so they can test her, her clothing to see... And undergarments. Let's say undergarments, because customers... Uh, DNA well, yeah, put your hand in and say, hey, how you doing, or whatever. Or, yeah, but there should be nobody's um, DNA or skin cells on her undergarments, um, you know? Right. right. So they would that would be where they would go for. They would go for th- areas of her clothing that should not have been touched by anyone but the perpetrator. And so that's where they would go. So they'd put their head together and they'd test those areas of the clothing, those specific areas, because it's very sensitive. And then, then they might get some new DNA a new DNA profile, but then they have to go and get some DNA from the people that they think are suspects if they'll give it to them and match it up. Because even though they go and they get the DNA off the clothing, if it's not in their, um, if it's not in their database, they have to get it off of people like and all the other possible suspects that were in there. Unless they've been fingerprinted for something. Right. But they still have to get their, they would need their swabs to get DNA. They couldn't get from their fingerprints. So they would have to go back to these people and say, will you give us your DNA? And people do not have to give it to them. And if they don't have to give it to them, unless they've got probable cause to get a warrant to get their DNA, um, that sometimes they don't get it. it. Or they surreptitiously get it. And so they go by and grab your trash or something like that when you're not looking and then they'll test it against it and if they find out yep it's a hit then they have to go and get probable cause to get it legally you know to get to act to go back the right way but it's a good way cops it's a good way for cops to basically narrow it down and know that they're looking in the right direction so there's so many steps that they have to follow but what i think we're hearing is this gossip is that there might be a little bit of truth into it he may be a witness they may be questioning him because he saw something or someone that day so uh-huh. that may be why he's being questioned, not because he's arrested. So it makes it does make me wonder where all this speculation is coming from. It makes it more interesting to me. And doesn't this scare you to do this for fear the guy's going to come after you? Well, I, you know, I always try to be careful, but I think in this particular situation, the person who did this is 60s, 70s, you know, likely at this time. It's been 30 
you know, five years. So I'm not necessarily... Uh, not necessarily if he was 20 years old at the time. Yeah, he'd be in 50s. That's true if it was a younger person. But I, I don't get out much and I don't, I, you know, I have a good enough security at my house. So I don't do, I try not to take a lot of risks. Let me put it that way. I feel kind of sheriff. I'm Sergeant Matson. Yes, Matt, you speak with Sheriff Crawford. Um, hold on. Thank you. You might remember me having some questions about the audio or dispatch log from the day that Jeanette was murdered. I called Sheriff Crawford at the Osceola County Sheriff's Department a little while back to see if I could sort out some of my questions. What I wanted was the dispatch log and the audio of the call that came in from the Gamble's store to Osceola County Sheriff's Department on January 19, 1983, the day of the murder. If you remember from an earlier episode, Raymond Haight, the Osceola County dispatcher at the time of the murder, told me that the calls were in fact recorded back when he worked there and that they would log all those calls in. I had twice requested them from Osceola County and been told that they did not exist, and I also contacted Michigan State Police, who denied my request, saying, quote, To the best of the department's knowledge, information, and belief, the public records do not exist within the department. Because the Michigan State Police dispatched for Reed City Police at the time, one would think they would have some call logs too. Apparently they don't have any either. Even when I spoke with Ray the last time, he continued to insist that they were recorded and logged at Osceola County back in 1983. Here's what Sheriff Crawford had to say about it. Yes, ma'am. Well, um, she had sent a response and said that they were not recorded at that time. So I wanted to find out if you know what year they started recording them, first of all. Oh, uh, I know that I started here. I've been here 31 years, and I started in dispatch, and we had no recording devices at that time. I mean, we had, I, I remember sitting in that room and we had like six or seven telephones. Each phone came from a fire department. If the call come in on that, we would, and then we would radio out the, uh, where the fire was and stuff to the fire department on that phone. And when we done traffic, if our deputies were on the road and stopped the car and wanted to run the driver to see if his driver's license was good, I would take the information down, I would pick up the phone and call the state police here in Reed City, the post, and give them the information because they're the only ones that had a lean machine that could run that information. And then they would run it and give me the answer, and I would in turn get on the radio and give my deputy that information. So we were really limited. I mean, we dispatched right out of here because, like I said, that's where I started about 31 years ago. And there was no central dispatch or anything. And there were, we had no recording devices in there that would record our phone calls or, or our radio traffic. I mean, it was just basic, a telephone and a, a two-way radio. The old style radios is what it was. Well, the thing is, I talked to the dispatcher that worked that day, and he said they were recorded and logged on the day when he worked the, there. And the dispatcher, the, he worked for the sheriff's department then? Yes, his name was Raymond or, did he work for the sheriff's department or did he work for EMS? He worked for the sheriff's department. Before that, he had worked for EMS, so he had done both jobs. 
but he worked for the sheriff's department. He was also uh, worked for the jail. What's the? I can't remember the position it's called, but he he did double. Duty. Probably a correction, correction officer. Probably. Yes, sir. That's what it is. Correct. Yes, that's now that you say it. Um, well, and so he said they did, and he they logged them too, and that's why. Let me explain what my. Maybe you might even know the answer to my question. The reason why I wanted okay. them, and that'll help out. That day, he said, um, and I know this to be true because the EMT got the um, dispatch this way, the EMTs were under the impression when they arrived that they were responding to a heart attack in progress. The call came into them as a heart attack in progress, and all these years, everyone's wanted to know why that was the case. And Ray had said, you know, it may have been that the, and he thought now, that the sheriff um, ordered him to put it out because of so many, the prevalence of scanners just in the normal households that time, they may have um, told him to put it out that way so that there weren't a lot of people attracted to the scene, but it doesn't really make sense to me because they had already put out one call to um, to the cars and to the state police, so that call had already gone out. Everyone that had a scanner would have heard it, so I'm just trying to get to the bottom of why that call went out as a heart attack to the EMTs. Huh. Boy, I don't, I don't have a clue on that, but I... I, I know that Reed City was the responding unit. I think uh, uh, Mr. Fingbinder was, dep or Police Officer Fingbinder was the first unit on scene. Right, uh, and, and that's another and thing. He, he said to me that when he got the call, this is Ray Haight, um, yeah. when he got the call and the, his two deputies were standing right there at the desk. So he turned around, told them what he got. They ran out the door. Obviously, they're just a couple blocks down. So. Um, I guess Stinkfinder had to have been walking around down there. I'm not sure how he even got that call yet because it wasn't even put out. And Ray said that the state police dispatched city at that time. And so he would have called state police, and the state police would have had to contact Reed City. So he's not even sure how Stinkfinder got there first because he wasn't contacted first. So that was does, sort of why I wanted the dispatches to clear it all. Yeah. Does, does Mr. Haight, does, did he take the call on who called it in to begin with? Yes, he did. He, he was, he, and he, he said he, he took the call. He was the first person. Um, he, he got the call. He said he usually got there early, about 15 minutes early, so they could change shifts. And, and that's, it was a shift change time. So he was there about 15 minutes early. He said he had no sooner sat down than that call came in from Gambles. And he couldn't remember who had called it in from Gambles, too. So that was another question. I, those were the main things huh. I wanted to go over. Who called it in? Who was called first? Just to get, just to clear it up because there's so much confusion around who who got there first and why. And to me, it would make sense. You know, everybody knew that Officer Singfinder was standing at the door shooing customers out of the store when EMTs yeah. arrived because they had to go and back and get them. And if yeah. Officer Singfinder heard that heart attack call and he thought that's what they were responding to, that action would make more sense than if he had done that, right? I mean, if he if, thought it was heart attack, yeah, he would have people out of there. Did Mr. Haight say who the deputies were that was standing there? Oyster, and he first thought it was Chuck Davis, but I have since asked uh, Chief Davis, and he wasn't on. So it would have been Kingsbury and Oyster, most likely, because those are the two that would have worked together. If, from what have I you talked to, to Terry or Mr. Oyster? Uh, you know, he's I, still I, in the area. He I might haven't. he might be able to like like say I I I'm this sure Crawford, and I didn't start here till. It was 31 years ago, so I I wasn't even working here at the time. I was yeah. working now at the Cooper, but and and our the records they kept when I took over all any records was over at the old uh, by the animal control over there, and we we have went through everything, and but every everything was kind of a mess over there. Nothing was really kept in order. 
And we didn't get rid of anything that was tied into a homicide because you keep those forever, basically, if they're not solved. Right. But I don't, I, I'm, I'm honest, when I worked here, we didn't, we didn't have nothing to record with. Uh, he said it was done through the phones. Ray said it was done through the phones at the time. So I don't know what that means. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't either because, you know, our phone companies back then were, <laughs> were a lot different than they are now. Yeah, and, yeah. and, and if, and if you had a, a system in a phone and it recorded, my land, it, it'd have to recycle itself. You know, I think now they only do like a 30 day and then it, you know, it recycles. If you don't go back and pick it up and, and make a copy of it or put it somewhere else, in 30 days it recycles because they get you get you would get so many calls that there'd be no way to keep them all i mean they, right. they didn't have the storage system back then i imagine it was a tape if they had such a thing yeah. but i don't know right. who who would have had it because the the phone company basically doesn't you know keep police records um, right right i'm wondering if he's remembering <laughs> i well, would say he's remembering correctly yeah. but I know when I worked. You be, you know, you yeah. get three or four people to ask because nobody remembers correctly. Let's be honest. That's a long time ago. Yeah. Everybody I I, re I remember because the young lady's mother, Mrs. Fisher, went to our church at the time, so I I knew her mother. Her the old Free Methodist Church out there is where she went to church, and she was close with all the girls, my aunt and my mother, and you know, all I remember is. You know, uh, as as a nice lady, she was real good friends with my mother, uh, Myrtle Crawford, and uh, Kareen Edstrom. Uh, and they had, a, you know, the, the church society out there with Elva Austin, and they had a ladies group, and she was part of it. And like I say, she at that time, she was living at 180th and, and Leroy Road. Uh, her daughter that at that time wasn't, I don't think, wasn't living there with her. I mean, I, she was married, and... Uh, but I just remember Marion was a, a really nice person. I always liked her. Yeah. Uh, and she was just part of the women's group at the Rose Lake Free Methodist Church. And uh, that's that's the part I remember from, you know, when it happened. I always felt sorry for her to have your something like that happen to your daughter. And oh, bless her heart. But other than that, I, I'm sorry I can't be more help to you. But No, that's okay. You've been really... Um with your time and I appreciate it. I figure I'll see if I can find something out about when the what, what's going on. Even the logs. I mean, if they weren't recorded, the logs should still be exist. But I did send to Michigan State Police for those logs, and they say you don't have them either. So I'm just wondering. I would have thought that they would have made a copy, wouldn't you? At the time, at least. Well, because I would have guessed they got the original call. Because, like I say, if they're dispatching for Reed City, I'm sure the call would have went right to the state police post. Right, and I wonder why, yes, that's true. It should have gone to the state police post, so I wonder yeah. why they don't have dispatch calls either. Maybe maybe you're right. Maybe they weren't being recorded back then. Yeah, I, I think deal. back then it was that was a real luxury if you had something that recorded phone calls. <laughs> I, I know that, like I say, when I started here, the shop closed, and, and Dave Needham, uh, Sheriff Needham offered me a job as a dispatcher, and uh it was an interesting job, but uh, recording-wise and uh, stuff, I you know, I, I just don't remember being part of the <laughs> part of the system. Well, we know it was not there was no 911 yet, so it was definitely before that. So right, maybe so, that's yeah. recording when they got the 911. Yeah, they that's they do have a good recording system, but we have never really been able to do the recordings. 
Okay. And then the last thing I had asked was, you don't, you guys don't have any more documents. Everything you had regarding that case were turned over, if you had them. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. I did. I went through all my stuff again to make sure I hadn't missed anything. But when they were doing the cold case thing, I took everything down and turned it over to uh, Chief Davis and the, I guess the state police were working with them at that time. So you turned everything over to Chief Davis? I, I think it was was Chief Davis. I know it was the state police, and I think he was working with them on a cold case. We didn't really have hardly anything. There was just a couple supplements that, mm-hmm. that went with the state police, you know, the, and I don't even remember what deputy's name was on it. But if Terry was there, he might remember what the call was that come in or have some, it might have some information. Terry's a nice person. He'd... Well, maybe I'll give him a call. Help you. Yeah, I always hate to bother the law enforcement because I know it puts them in a bad, you know, yeah. I don't want to make them uncomfortable. They don't, you know, they're not wanting to say anything that will, you know, jeopardize the kids. Yeah. But I'm just trying to get a feel for that one, that heart, um, you know, the heart attack call because if that is strange, sure. I thought, let me figure it out. It is, yeah. The other thing that, that bothers me about that is I know Office Stingfighter got a lot of, he got a lot of crap, let's be honest, over the years about how that, scene was handled, but if he got the call as a heart attack in progress, it seems like his actions would make a lot more sense, you know, that he was trying to get people out of the scene so they can yeah. clear. So that that's what I'm trying to figure out, you know, try to figure, figure out, out why yep. that was the case again. All right. Well, I don't want to take up any more of your time, Sheriff, but I appreciate okay. you taking this call. It was very nice of you. Thank you so much. Well, and good luck with your endeavor. <laughs> Thank you. You have a great day. Uh-huh, bye. Bye-bye. I would love to talk to Terry Oyster or Tom Kingsbury. They both worked for Osceola County Sheriff's Department at the time. I'm always hesitant to bust the chops of law enforcement officers because, as I said to Sheriff Crawford, it puts them in a bad situation. They can't really talk about a lot of the stuff that they saw. But if either of them could shed any light on the call being dispatched as a heart attack to the EMTs, I'd love it if they would. So if any of my local listeners have any sway with either of these gentlemen, maybe you can butter them up and send them my way. Just tell them I don't bite. Detective Southworth and Detective Pratt both spoke with me, and they did an admirable job of clarifying what they could without revealing things they were not able to. Now I would really like someone from the sheriff's department back then to weigh in. Just a quick note about where we are. Today was supposed to be the last episode, but I started talking to people again and doing a few more interviews, so I figured I would share them. I plan to have at least one more that I'm hoping will be very interesting, which would come before the final episode. But the date on that one is still tentative. Because there has been a lot of community chatter about the case in recent days, I might even get more interviews, so we'll just have to play it by ear. So I'll keep the Facebook page updated, and you stay tuned.